0: I want you, church, to have love for each other. To comprehend with everyone else in the church, with all the other network of churches, with all the saints, with whatever color, whatever race, Jews and Gentiles. Yes, he's talked about race. All the saints, the old ones, the young ones, the easy to get along ones, the, 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 the ones who are slightly less easygoing.
1: All of us to have love. Welcome to the God-Centered Life with Josh Moody, making our way through the book of Ephesians, 3rd chapter, verses 14 through 21. The Love That Surpasses Knowledge. It's part of our Heavenly Places series. Josh Moody, a senior pastor of College Church, look at about 30 miles west of the city of Chicago. I'm talking to Steve, and you are joining us. We're very glad that you are. Uh, Josh, uh, love is one of the easiest topics mm. for a preacher to tackle, isn't
0: <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, so easy, yes. <laughs> it's,
1: I, it's, it's, uh, it struck me as often
0: quite strange, but it's a very hard topic to preach on. And, it's such, a, it's such a deep and profound subject, but it's hard for us to genuinely believe that we've been loved and to accept love, uh, particularly as it relates to truth and all the rest, yeah. Well,
1: the very title of this uh, study, Surpasses Knowledge. Right, right. <laughs> Let's get to it. Third chapter of the book of Ephesians. Here's Josh.
0: I remember the first time I preached on love in a church context. I was preaching uh, from the washing of the feet in John chapter 13, and John there says that Jesus now show them the full extent of his love and I chose that passage because in my naivety as a young preacher I assumed that every church would want to hear about love and I thought it would be a nice and easy sermon how wrong I was I think I've rarely received more blowback from a sermon preaching on love in fact it has been my experience down through the years that whenever the Bible talks about love There's a resistance. Why that is, uh, I've thought about a lot over the years. I think some of it is to do with the romantic notion of love. Uh, For some people, coming to church and hearing about love feels a bit like being asked to go to a movie theater and watch Jane Austen movies on repeat. If you're going with your wife, you can put up with watching Pride and Prejudice, but really, do you have to do it in church too? It feels lovey-dovey, not real, not hard, not tough. But I think there are more subtle reasons too why it's hard. I think the world outside doesn't always like to know that Christians love each other. Tertullian, one of the great early church leaders, wrote a, a book called the, the Apology, often translated that way. And in it, he's making the case for the truth of Christianity. And part of the case he makes is that Christians love each other, very famously. He says about the pagans outside, when they watch the church, they say, see how they love one another. And that's often been quoted from Tertullian down through the years. What's often not remembered is that Tertullian then goes on in that place in the Apologia, the Apology, to say the reason why they are so amazed that we love each other is because they so hate each other. They cannot begin to grasp love. So it is no surprise then that in this prayer, if you have the ESV, you'll see it's titled Prayer for Spiritual Strength, which it is, But it's a prayer for spiritual strength to grasp love. And it's no surprise then, when you begin to think through how difficult it is to actually understand love, that Paul asks for power, not to understand the Trinity, not for perseverance through suffering, as important as those things are, and as much as we need power for those things too. But here when he's praying for spiritual strength, he's praying for spiritual strength that we might grasp love. You need power for love. That's a surprise. As I say, this, this passage here is praying for that for love, and as he prays, he's revealing the kind of things that we need to understand. There are basically three. The first is what you might call the foundation, and the second is what you might call the expanse. If you think of it as a house, there's the foundation, understanding of love, and then there's the whole expanse of it, the length and breadth and height. It's not really a house. It's like a house without a roof. It kind of expands and expands and expands and expands, the expanse of love, so the foundation, the expanse. And you think he couldn't get any more than that, But then he culminates with what I would call the fullness, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice to begin with that he's, as I've already mentioned, he's praying for this reason. The reason is what he's been arguing throughout uh, the letter, namely that they are to be encouraged uh, by God's heavenly power, and he's explained the gospel. So having done all that and, and having already prayed... Before that, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. That is, they would see something important. Now he comes back to pray again. And that really important thing he wants us to see, as I say, is love. So he's praying. Verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, what, what does the Apostle Paul mean by that? Our last name in our family is Moody, which, by the way, does not mean grumpy. It, 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 it. It actually means um, passionate, apparently. Um, And, you know, your last name may be Smith or something. and That's how your family is named. So what does he mean that every family on earth and in heaven is named after the Father? I think what the Apostle Paul is saying, what he's talking about here, is how the family of the church, which is made up, as he's already been saying, Jews and Gentiles, they're all united under the name of God. I remember when I was a missionary in the former Soviet Union and we would go to the Russian Baptist churches. And Russian Baptist churches have a tradition of not just one sermon, but three or four. And the reason for that, of course, is because it was hard to meet. And so they'd meet uh, early in the morning and then they'd hear their first sermon and then they'd sing a bit more and they'd hear another sermon and they'd sing a bit more and then they'd hear the third sermon and sing a bit more. And the the services then were, to us, felt interminable. They would go from like 8 in the morning till 12 at noon. One service with at least, and they weren't short sermons either, I can tell you that. They were long. Uh, Different culture. China, Russia, Middle East. But all Christian. Every family is named, is under the name, the identity of the Father God. I think that's what he's saying. And then we come to these three aspects that he's praying, that we would need the spiritual strength to grasp about love. And it's a little... Um as I've mentioned a couple of times, the way the Apostle Paul writes, he's probably dictating and it can seem like he's rambling a little bit and going around in circles. And there's certainly something in this prayer that feels extempore. He's dictating, he's praying and you get the secretary is scribbling fast, writing down what he's saying. And there's an element to that. You can't make the Apostle Paul sound more structured than he is. Uh, when John Stott, one of the great British preachers, used to preach the Apostle Paul, one of the jokes about John Stott's preaching, who's one of my... he's... He was a great man of God. I don't in any way mean to sneer him about him. But one of the jokes that some of the young people used to make about his preaching was he, he was so good at preaching the Apostle Paul, he made the Apostle Paul sound much clearer than he really was. You know? and, and so there's a temptation in preaching Paul to make it not sound... He was a Jew, of course, a Pharisee, a Middle Easterner, a different culture, and he's dictating. So he, he, we shouldn't make him sound like a sort of European Enlightenment rationalist. That wasn't the Apostle Paul. But there is some structure here. And the structure is around, in our translation, that, which could also be translated in order that. So he has three things he's praying for. And the first is verse 16, in order that, and this is the, the foundation, being rooted and grounded in love. And the second, in the second half of verse 17, he kind of circles back to the first again. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, which is his summary of what he, the first part, And then here comes the second part, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's the second part, the expanse, the breadth and length and height and depth, expanding. And then in order that, the final part is just right at the end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, the fullness, which then leads him on to famous, often used as a benediction, the end of services, but a famous Praise uh, to God. Uh, 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 he moves into extempore praise as he thinks about this love in his prayer.
1: More on Paul's plan to grasp this love in just a moment, but first a reminder that Josh selects a book each month and makes it available as our way of saying thank you to those who support us financially. We'll tell you a little bit more about that book towards the end of the program today, or you can go to our website and find out more That web address, GodCenteredLife.org. Back into Ephesians, the third chapter now. Here's Josh. So these
0: are the three parts. The first I say, verses 16 and 17, is the rooted and grounded in love. Look how he describes it. And essentially, if you want to know in summary what he's saying here is, I'm praying that you who in the church would really be Christians. According to the riches of his glory, so the gospel is always about God's glory. Isn't that an amazing thought? The good news of Jesus is about glorifying God. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you or give to you, grant you be strengthened with power. So here's the power, through his spirit in your inner being. That is regeneration, as theologians call it. Being born again, coming alive, as he's uh, described in chapter 2. Alive with Jesus, Uh, raised with Jesus, this, this inner spiritual life. Jesus is in your heart. He's living in you. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to have Jesus dwell in your heart. How? Through faith, through trust. You ask him to save you. He comes into your heart. He lives in your heart. You ask me how I know Jesus lives. He lives within my heart. It's the basics. Rooted and grounded in love. It's having the love of God in you through faith. Are you a Christian? Do you know this love? I'm not asking whether you're a churchgoer. I'm not asking whether you've been baptized. I'm asking whether Jesus lives in you have you trusted Jesus do you have his love shed abroad in your heart as the Bible calls it elsewhere that when the rest of your reality the rest of your life is going to the dogs you know Jesus loves you because he died on the cross for sinners like you do you know that have you trusted him nothing else is more important Not your finances, not your job, not your career, not even your family. Nothing is more important than your eternal salvation. Do you have Jesus' love in your heart? He's praying that they would, and I'm praying that you would too. But then the next level is expansive. So then he goes on, having been rooted and grounded in love, well, I'm also praying. I'm not just praying that you'd be saved. The most important thing, of course. But I'm praying more. I'm praying that you, having been rooted and ground in love, may have, again, strength. So it is a prayer for spiritual strength, but for a purpose. What's the purpose? To comprehend with all the saints. With all the saints means with all real Christians. Uh, it's one of those words that in church history has been so confused. There are traditions within the church that use the word saint to mean a particularly eminent Christian, St. Augustine, uh, St. Cuthbert uh, was a lesser well-known uh, saint in, uh, in the north of England, or uh, St. Boniface, uh, the great German saint who was the, the one who pioneered the gospel in Germany. There are traditions that use that word saint to mean an eminent Christian and seek to honour the person that way. It's not obviously wrong to honor eminent Christians like Boniface, who pioneered the gospel in Germany, or Augustine, or Chrysostom, the great Greek Orthodox Christian leader. But it's not the way the Bible uses the word. The Bible uses the word to mean holy ones, and it is referring to those who have been declared holy through Jesus' work on the cross, though they're sinners. We're also saints. Though we're sinners as as Christians, we're also saints because we have Jesus' righteousness, declared righteous. That's the way Paul uses the word saints always, as far as I can see. And so when he says here, and this is the next layer, the expanse, the height and breadth and length of of God's love, uh, he says to comprehend, you need strength to comprehend what with all the saints, that is with all real Christians, So now he's not thinking about our individual relationship with God. Are you saved? Which is the first level. Now he's thinking about the community experience of love. I want you church to have love for each other. To comprehend with everyone else in the church. With all the other Ephesian Christians. With all the other network of churches. With all the saints. With whatever color, whatever race, Jews and Gentiles. See, yes, he's talked about race. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. They're now included. The whole, all nations. All the saints. The old ones, the young ones, the easy to get along ones, the, 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 the ones who are easygoing, the ones who are uh, slightly less easygoing. All of us to have love. And I think that's why he talks about the breadth and length and height and depth. He's, he's thinking about all the saints. That whole expansive community of, of the church in Ephesus, but of course the global church and, and the church from the beginning to the end of time, the, the invisible church with all the saints. It's a very expansive vision of God's love. But it's also very countercultural. I was reminded of this again when I was I, uh, I was reading in um, someone called George MacDonald. George MacDonald was in the nineteenth century Scottish Christian author who wrote a lot of poetry and some uh, a lot of books, novels. He was a really interesting fish, interesting character, and very influential on C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, I discovered, was C.S. Lewis' whole imaginative, imaginative world with Narnia and all that was, was, according to Lewis, triggered by reading George MacDonald. In particular, one book of his called Fantasties. And I thought, well, I've never read that. I need to read it. And so I read it. It's a very strange book. Really odd. And I, I, I like reading books. But I, I, it was one of those books where I thought, I'm going to finish this. You know, you've got books like that? Probably one of mine. You thought, I'm going to finish it. <laughs> It's the pastors. I've got to finish it. Um, (laughs) Uh, Anyway, and I did finish it. And I'm glad I did. There were some lines in it that were quite amazing. And one line there was about love, and I won't be able to quote it exactly right, but basically what George MacDonald was saying was, we think that the blessedness of love, that is the happiness that comes from love, we think that the blessedness of love is being loved. But actually, the blessedness of love is loving. That's what makes us happy. It's that sort of thing I think the Apostle Paul's talking about here, the length and breadth and height and depth of the love to comprehend, to experience, not just comprehend intellectually, but to experience all the saints. That we here at College Church should be the kind of church when someone comes in and they say, as Tertullian said that the pagans used to say about the early Christians how they love one another. Wow, they love each other. It would be great if people come in and say, well, it's a wonderful building. They're so well organized. Uh, They do everything right. Uh, they, They really know what they're doing. And wow, that was a great... But the most important thing the Apostle Paul was praying is that they would come in and say, wow, they love each other. I think... That's true to some extent here, but I'm sure we could grow a it. How could you love the new members? Who could you invite back to your home for lunch? They're not always planned. I think we're very good as a church. We're a planning church. Everything is planned. There's a church schedule. You know, the new members, it's 11 o'clock and it's been planned for a week. We're very good. And planning is good, but to, I think it's the Marines that say that Marines don't plan. They adapt. So, maybe have some adaptive love. Maybe plan that there'll be someone around your lunch table each week, but you're not sure who. And you come in and you go, I wonder who I'm going to invite this week. See how they love each other. That sort of thing. Tangible, practical expressions of love with all the sense. It surpasses knowledge because it's not just intellectual, it's experienced. And then uh, as the final uh, layer, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I have to be honest with you, I'm always honest with you, but frank and overt with you. I find that phrase almost impossible to understand. And I'll indicate why briefly, then I'll try and do my best to explain it, but Paul is saying, you Ephesian Christians, I'm praying that you be filled with all the fullness of God. What What can he mean? And I know someone's going to come up to me afterwards, and I said, I read a commentary by D.A. Carson. He told me what it means, and here it is. So like, I've read the commentaries too, and they're helpful to some extent, but it's not easy. Okay, according to the Apostle Paul, who is God, he's God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's... The God of the scriptures he's the God of providence he's talked about uh, the blessed be, chapter 1 verse 3 blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ every spirit he chose us in him for the foundation of the world he breathed death. this is the God who's sovereign over everything he he's, he's the God who sent Jesus He's great love the God of, of Calvary he's the God of the fulfilled blessing of Abraham the gospel going to all nations he's He's omnipotent, all-powerful, he's omniscient, he knows everything, he's infinite, he's omnipresent, and he's transcendent, yet imminent. I'm just using a whole bunch of long theological words, but you get the point, this is God. And now he's praying that we will be filled, not just with God, which I think I could understand, Uh, we have the Holy Spirit within us as Christians. But filled with the fullness of God. What can he mean? How can a finite person have an infinite being fully in him or her? And I think he's, and this may be oversimplifying it, but I think what he's talking about is Jesus, who is the fullness of God, fully God. And I'm praying that you would have Jesus in you. And therefore have the fullness of God in you. And which leads him to to praise. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And I wonder whether the Apostle Paul was even beginning to go beyond what he could comprehend. According to the power at work within us. Again it's power. We need power to begin to grasp how much God loves us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Or as the well-known hymn puts it, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Love, so amazing. So divine, demands my life, my soul, my all.
1: That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. Josh, you're wrestling with the phrase, filled with the fullness of God. And yes, I can see why that's yeah. hard to really get a hold of. We're right. we talking about the Holy Spirit. We're we talking about Jesus. Seems that both would work.
0: Yes, it's, it's the
1: wholeness of God
0: filled with him by the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And uh, it, it's meant to leave us with a sense of wonder, isn't it? Hmm. that sure if we're, <laughs> Yeah, if we're, if we're a Christian, we, we are filled with all the fullness of God. How extraordinary. What a great gift it is, then, to be one of His people. Yeah. Fantastic.
1: All right. We're going to continue looking at uh, Ephesians, the dynamic of the church, and actually sliding over to talk about unity when we get together next time. Hope you're going to join us for that. We'd love for you to swing by our website, GodCenteredLife.org. You can sign up for a devotional there. It comes in the form of an email each day, and not only do you get the devotional, there's links to the studies and other resources as well. Our website is where all of that's taking place, and it's GodCenteredLife.org. Org. We hope you're going to take advantage of it. Uh, next time, continuing in Ephesians, as I said, and we're asking the question, well, unity, but at what price? There's this massive desire today
0: from the political elite and the talking heads to try to generate unity, because everyone's aware that our society is fragmenting. But the way they're trying to do it is to minimize truth
1: speaking. Chasing down that unity from the book of Ephesians when we get together next time. There's resources available for you and a chance to partner with us at GodCenteredLife.org. And this is your invitation to join us around God's Word right here next time for The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody.